to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now this uh, incident here where again water comes from the rock uh, is so like the one that we looked at last week that uh, there have been many people over the years who have suggested that what we have actually is two versions of the same account. One version in Exodus 17 and the other one here in Numbers 20. So I think uh, before we say anything else, we need to be quite clear in our minds that uh, that is not the case. The time is different. The place is different. If you take the time, the striking of the rock that we looked at last week took place in the very first year of the Exodus, when Israel came out of Egypt. The Bible is quite clear on that. It takes place in the first year. But the Bible is clear here that this incident, when water comes from the rock the second time, takes place in the 40th and final year of the wilderness wandering. So they are separated by 39 years. The first striking of the rock is at the beginning of their journey. The second striking of the rock is at the very end. Again, the Bible makes very plain that it happens in a different place. The first striking of the rock that we looked at last week took place in a place called Rephidim. This takes place many miles away from Rephidim in a place called Kadesh. And as well as difference in time and place, there are important and irreconcilable differences in the details in the two incidents. Um, and they're so different that it's changed really my, my approach to this because my intention was to, to bring this incident here into the two sermons that I preached last Sabbath. Now, although I referred to the incident, I realized very quickly that there was too much in it and it was too different to simply shoehorn it into the incident in Exodus 17. So with the Lord's help, I want us to look at this incident on its own and uh, to see what the Lord is saying to us in it. And uh, in that connection, it's one of these incidents in the Bible, and there are so many of them, one of these incidents where there are far more things going on than meet the eye. And that's why it's so rewarding to search the scriptures, to search them prayerfully, because there's always something to be found. Now, there is a significant part of the passage that we can pass over, and that's the role of the congregation itself. We're told that this place too, like the last place, was from no one called Meribah. That was to be its name in verse 13, this was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed amongst them. Now, I, I don't need to visit that again. We looked last week at what it meant to be contending with the Lord. The focus this time doesn't so much fall on the congregation. It falls on Moses and on Aaron. Now, you may say, well, that means that it's less relevant to us because we are not leading a congregation such as Moses and Aaron were. But it's not as simple as that either. You'll discover as you look at it that there are 
many things in Moses and Aaron's conduct and life here that are very directly applicable to yourself, all of you, as well as to me, and with God's help, will be attentive to that. Now, I'm saying that we don't really need to look at the congregation, except the one thing that we should notice just now is that the congregation isn't perhaps exactly the same as it was, because it takes place 40 years later. Now, I think, as we'll see later on, that there is a significance to that. Uh, It's 40 years afterwards when Moses himself is nearly 120 years old. Well, then let's look at the lessons that the Lord is teaching us here with his help. And uh, I, I did mention that the spotlight falls on Moses and Aaron. It's worthwhile stressing that Aaron is part of that too. Uh, very often when we think of Moses striking the rock here, we tend to leave Aaron out of the picture. But uh, whatever failure Moses is guilty of, and it's not easy to see what he's guilty of, but whatever the failure, Aaron is guilty of it too. He's complicit. In verse 10 here, when Moses strikes the rock, just before he strikes it, he says, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock. In verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Because you did not believe me, and the you there in the Hebrew is plural, plural, because both of you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you, again that's plural, both of you, Moses and Aaron, shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Again, the same thing in verse 24, when Aaron is dying or when Aaron is about to die, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you, that's again, you plural, rebelled against me, against my word at the water of Meribah. Now, this is telling us that it wasn't just Moses who was prohibited from entering the promised land. I mean, if I I was to say to you, well, who did God say concerning that they could not enter the promised land? You'd probably say, well, that was Moses. But it was Aaron too. Aaron was prohibited by God from entering the promised land because of this incident here. So they're both involved in it. Now, the Bible says that two are better than one. That's a famous verse from Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one. The verse says that if one falls, the other will lift him up. If one is cold, the other will warm him up. If one is overpowered, the other will help him. Um, But it's not always the case. Uh, Moses here might be determined on a certain course of action. Aaron doesn't stop him. And he is complicit. Now, Aaron was guilty of that before. In the the making of the golden calf, Aaron did not really agree with making the golden calf, uh, but he went along with it, and uh, he blamed the people for leading him along with it. Now, here he's guilty of a similar thing. This time he, he is going along with what Moses is doing, but he's complicit in that himself. Uh, Two aren't always better than one in that way. Sometimes if you have the support of a good man, it makes you feel that you're doing a good thing. Maybe some of you can recall incidents like that. 
if you felt that a good man was doing something, then you thought, well, I can do that myself. Or maybe it's the case that the other person is looking at you and saying, well, well, you're a good person, and this is the course of action that you're taking, so I'm going to follow you. And uh, we've seen plenty of that, in a way, in our lives. But be careful that even if it's a good man who's leading you, be careful that he's leading you in a good thing. It's hard to believe here that the two rulers of Israel, one the civil ruler Moses and the other the spiritual ruler Aaron, are both going in the wrong direction. And neither is stopping the other. So Aaron is just as involved in this as Moses. The other thing that we need to notice right away is that whatever is going wrong at this rock, and like I said, it's not easy to see what it is, but whatever is going wrong at this rock, it's going seriously wrong because it leads to the death of both Moses and Aaron within just a few months of the event. Now, I don't know if, if you were familiar with that particular fact, but it is an important one. Before the year is over, they're both dead, and they're both dead because of this incident. And really, the loss to the congregation is huge because Miriam died in the first month of this 40th year. Then you have this incident. Within a couple of months, Aaron is dead. And before the end of the year, Moses is dead. So it's a very significant event. In verse 12, God says, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So the reason Moses and Aaron are not allowed to enter is because of this. It's because of this. And uh, it's clear to them that the, that the meaning of what God says there is not that they're going to be deposed from leadership simply, but that they're actually going to die. They're going to die. And uh, we saw that Aaron, well, we read it in connection with Aaron in verse 24, Aaron shall be gathered to this people, for he shall not enter the land, because you both rebelled against my word. And uh, <clears throat> again, in chapter 27, if you just move forward to it, and verse 14, Sorry, verse 12, Numbers 27 at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So they were both chastised with death. Um, it's interesting, by the way, to notice just how faithful and accurate God is whenever he speaks. Um, if, you, if you go back 40 years from this point, you'll remember that Israel tried to... Um, well, Israel were commanded to invade the promised land. And you remember how the 12 spies were sent out 
uh, to spy out the land. And of course, they saw the, uh, the giants there, the children of Anakim, and uh, they saw the fortified cities and so on, and they were overcome with fear and unbelief, except two of them, Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two spies who came back with a positive report. Uh, yes, of course, they said, we can do it. We can take it. These cities are walled, yes. There look to be substantial soldiers amongst them, but with the help of God, there's nothing there that we can't do. But as you know, that turned out to be a minority report. The majority report returned by the 10 spies was that they were essentially in no position to take the land. And the congregation murmured. They followed the majority report. And the result was that they were 40 years in exile. But God said that because of their unbelief, that only two of the congregation would enter the promised land. God said, every single one of you over the age of 20, every single one of you will die before your wanderings are finished, except Caleb and Joshua. Now, I don't know if you ever wondered what Moses and Aaron thought of that statement. That statement, strictly read or strictly understood, would mean that neither Moses nor Aaron themselves would get into the promised land. And that was, in fact, the case. Maybe they, it's possible that they thought, well, this isn't meant to include us. But God knows in advance. He knows what's going to happen. He knows this sin 40 years later. He knows how complicit Aaron will be along with Moses. And so in that judgment, God spoke 40 years before, you have this judgment here. It's just a solemn reminder to us, that's all, that God knows in advance. God ordains all things in advance. And a solemn reminder to us, too, that God says what he means, and God means what he says. Um, the more unusual thing is that this is a chastisement upon Moses and Aaron. It seems strange that you can be chastised with death itself. Now, I think we, we saw this in connection with, um, with Uzzah. This is going back several months now, maybe even years for all I know. Uh, but you remember Uzzah who put, who put out his hand to steady the ark of God when the ark was about to fall. God struck him dead on that occasion. It was a chastisement upon Uzzah himself for doing it, even though the intention of his heart was right. He did something that was wrong in the sight of the Lord. It was also an intention, a chastisement upon David. It seems strange for us that death can be a chastisement to a person. After all, does death not immediately make us pass into glory? Does, does death not translate us out of this veil of sorrow and tears and bring us into the immediate presence of God? I mean, how on earth can you describe such an event as a chastisement to the person who receives it? But I think there's a couple of things to bear in mind. The first thing is that normally when people are chastised with death, that death doesn't come suddenly. It comes as a process. Now, Uzzah that I mentioned there is an exception to that. I'll come to the exceptions in a second. But normally when a person is dealt with by chastisement. Death is a process. And during that process of death, they are being made aware of the fact that their death is a chastisement, and it's being brought before them 
very powerful by, by the Spirit of God that there's something that they should have done which they didn't do, or perhaps something that they did that they ought not. Normally something um, that they shouldn't do, and there's something that they could have done and would have done if this death was not coming upon them. In other words, they are conscious that death, in a certain sense, has advanced to meet them. Now, I know it's possible to say in response to that that the time of our death is appointed. Well, of course it's appointed. Everything is appointed. But the fact is that God can make that appointment, if you like, earlier than he otherwise would have made it, because there was something in our lives that is displeasing to him. When David said in his prayer, cut me not off in the mid-time of my days, that's what he's referring to. If you're just going to take his days as, as something that were appointed by the Lord anyway, there would be no sense in that prayer. But he uses this expression, cut me not off in the mid-time of my days, as much as to say, Lord, don't bring my death near. Don't let it be nearer to me than it ought to me. Because there is something I could do or something that I should have done that I have not yet done or something to that effect. Now, you may say, well, when the child of God is on his deathbed, well, they, they don't need to think about that kind of thing. They just know that their death is coming. But it's not like that for the child of God. You see, what makes a difference between you as a child of God and you here who are not a child of God is that the child of God is sensitive about these things. When a Christian is dying, they become very conscious of the life that they've lived and become very conscious, not just of what they have done, but what they haven't done. And it can sometimes be a very heavy burden on someone's deathbed to know that there is something glaring in life that was omitted by them. And it's not a particular burden that I would wish to feel myself or that I would wish anyone else to feel. And uh, Moses, as he is about to die, and Aaron, as he is about to die, are both conscious of that. Aaron is told that Moses will take his clothes off him before he dies, his, his public vestures, and he will place them upon his son as a chastisement at that particular time. And he will die on Mount Tor as a chastisement. Moses is made conscious of this at this time here. And so for the rest of the year, for the rest of the year, he's a man who can hardly believe the fact that he's going to die. Remember, we're told in Deuteronomy that he died in the full vigor of his strength. He may have been 120 years old, but we're told that his eyes had not dimmed. His vision was still perfect. And we're told that neither was the natural vigor of his body diminished. He was as strong and as agile as he had always been with all his faculties intact. And that was making him even more aware of the fact that he was dying under the Lord's chastisement. Dying with a sense that there's something he should have accomplished that he did not accomplish. Now, I know I've said it, but I can't warn you enough against just appealing to God's sovereignty in these things and saying, oh, well, that was the time for him to die anyway. No, there are lessons to be learned. Had Moses not done this, in other words, he would have entered the promised land. 
You may say, well, God had his purposes. I know God had his purposes, but it doesn't take away from that fact that had Moses not fallen, he would have walked into the land of promise and done the thing that he ought to have done. But he missed out on it. He missed out on it. It was a chastisement upon him. Now, I mentioned a couple of exceptions. Well, I mentioned one, Uzzah's chastisement was just like that. He reached out his hand to steady the ark of God, and God struck him dead. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament are similar. Um, The apostles were, a lot of the Christian people were selling extra property that they had in order to look after the poor. And uh, that was fine. It was a voluntary thing. Ananias and Sapphira uh, pretended that they had done something that they hadn't. And uh, Peter said to them, is this what you sold it for? And they said, yes, this is it. They, they lied. So they, they were pretending that they were very charitable and very giving and very warm, when in reality they were not. Peter said, the property was yours. You could have kept it. And you're perfectly free to keep it. But you're lying about what you did. And there and then they died. And that was a chastisement. But when God comes in a sudden chastisement like that, usually the chastisement is not just upon the individual, it's upon the church. We're told that in connection with Ananias and Sapphira, that great fear fell upon the church. Great fear fell upon the church. As it did in the case with Uzzah, When he touched the ark and died, the rejoicing and the celebration just stopped dead. And Israel went home and David went home. David, of course, we're told, went home angry. And he called the name of the place Perezuza, a breach upon Uzzah, because according to David, the Lord ought not to have struck Uzzah that way. But who are we to say that the Lord ought not to do what is right in his eyes? It took David three months to learn that the real source of the problem was himself and not Uzzah. And that was a mercy that he had not been struck down himself, that Uzzah had been struck down. But it was a chastisement upon David and a chastisement upon the church. And here, too, the fact that Moses and Aaron are dying is not just a chastisement upon themselves in anticipation of the event. It's a chastisement upon Israel as the events happen. Miriam, Aaron, Moses, dead in a year. And it's all to do with their sin and the sin of Moses and Aaron. And it's worth noting here that had they not sinned as a people, Moses and Aaron would not have sinned. We'll see that in a minute. You provoke somebody else to sin. With your own sin, you make another sin. And that person suffers for that sin. A greater sin than yours was. Isn't that a solemn thought in connection with how careful you should be about the example that you set to other people or what you ask other people to do or what by your influence you make them do, they sin and they suffer more for that sin than you do yourself. We need to be careful of the body and respectful of the body. That is the body of Christ, the church of God. Now, the point I'm making there is that this is more serious than meets the eye. To us, Moses just strikes the rock twice, God is angry, and that's that. There's more to it. They're both dead. 
within months. So the question is, what went wrong? Well, the Bible describes the sin here in three ways. Leaving aside the murmuring or the discontent or the contending of the people, he says that the Bible says that Moses and Aaron did not believe God in verse 12. They did not believe God. In verse 24, at the end of verse 24, we're told that Moses and Aaron rebelled against God's word at the water of Meribah. So they didn't believe God. They rebelled against his word. And in verse 12, we have the use of the word hallow. Hallow, in verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, to hallow me or to sanctify me, to make me holy in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So somehow or other, they were irreverent in what they did. They did not reverence or hallow the Lord. Uh, Jesus told us to pray, uh, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If something is hallowed, it is sacred, set apart, it's reverenced, it's holy. So they were irreverent in what they did. Irreverent. Oh, that should be a, that should be a sin of which we should be terribly afraid, should it not? That we would be irreverent before God. Even in our gathering today, we're told that holiness becomes the house of God. We're told in Leviticus to reverence God in his sanctuary. And we have to ask ourselves, am I reverencing God? Am I reverencing in my th giving him reverence in my thoughts, in my appearance, in my posture, in my attitude? Am I reverencing God? You did not hallow me in the eyes of the congregation. So I think we can reduce these three things to unbelief and irreverence. That's the sin, unbelief and irreverence. Now, in a way, we could look at it under both these headings, but it would be difficult to do it without a lot of overlap. I think it's better to take another approach. We often think of sin in thought, word, and deed. And uh, that's true. We sin in thought, we sin in word, and we sin in deed. Now, I think it might be helpful to look at what Moses and Aaron did here as sins of thought, of word and deed. So let's begin in their thoughts. Let's begin in their heart. What, what was it that was wrong with their spirit? Well, the answer to that in Scripture is anger. They were angry. And the Psalms make that clear. In Psalm 106 and verse 32, we're told that they angered him at the waters of strife. Moses himself, just before he dies, a few months after this, reflects back on this incident and said, you provoked me at the waters of strife. You provoked me. Now, he's not saying that to blame them. He's past that. Maybe there were times when he, when he did blame them, but he, he's going to face his maker and he's past that. He's just stating a fact that you did provoke me at the waters of strife. 
Now, anger is a very dangerous emotion. Certainly, there is such a thing in the Bible as a righteous anger. And a righteous anger will reveal itself in righteous words, righteously spoken, and righteous deeds that are righteously performed. That's a righteous anger. Righteous words, righteous deeds. Unrighteous anger produces unrighteous words and unrighteous deeds. And sad to say, uh, that was Moses' problem here. His anger, his unrighteous anger, broke out into bad words and bad actions. Now, there are various people of various temperaments. I mentioned that here the other day. You may, you may be a person who's quite prone to anger. On the other hand, you may not be. In fact, you might well say, well, it doesn't really matter what you have to say to me today. That's not my besetting sin. I'm actually a person of quite a placid temperament, and I don't usually get angry. Oh, well, that's very good for you, but so was Moses. In fact, we're told of Moses that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. We're told that in chapter 12 of this very book. Um, and in verse 3, uh, well, at, at the beginning of Numbers 12, uh, Miriam and Aaron confronted Moses. Now, that was another dangerous moment when Miriam, Miriam and Aaron, his brother and his sister, together spoke against Moses because he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through you? Has he not spoken through us also? Now, the Lord heard it. And Moses, the man, was very humble or meek, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. The meekest man on the face of the earth. It's usually translated meek, which carries the idea of uh, quiet uh, as well as humble. But even Moses here was provoked into anger. It's provoked. Now, of course, when we get angry, we say we're always provoked. There's something that, that stirs or provokes the anger. Now, that may be a reason for your anger, but it's never an excuse. There's never an excuse to be unrighteously angry. Um, Moses' temper just flared. Uh, the people came to him and contended with him and with Aaron, and he lost his temper. Now, the thing is, this wasn't the first time that happened. It wasn't even the second, third, or fourth, or fifth. But this time, he lost his temper. And what's significant, too, is that he actually prayed before he lost his temper, or even after he lost his temper. In verse 6 here, just after the people complain, we're told that Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, that's what he had done last time. And they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation, speak to the rock, and it will yield its water. Now, isn't it astonishing that after he goes in, prostrates himself before the Lord, sees the glory of the Lord, and hears the voice of the Lord, he gives way to anger at the rock. You'd have said that prayer was an antidote to anger. And normally you'd be right. 
prayer is an antidote to anger. If you feel anger rising in your breast, pray. But you have to be careful with that kind of prayer. Um, you can pray in an angry spirit, and you might leave the throne of grace and your prayer in an angry spirit too. Now, sad to say, without casting stones at anyone in particular, I'm afraid to say that I've seen this myself. Over the years in churches, I've seen people come into prayer in anger. I've seen them and heard them pray in their anger. And I've seen them leave their meetings of prayer in anger. It's not a good thing to see or to hear, but I've seen it and I've heard it. And some people foolishly think that the act of prayer in which they engaged sanctifies the thing that they're about to do, even if it is against the word of God. They seem to think that it sanctifies. In other words, instead of prayer being a channel to bring them into conformity to the will of God, prayer becomes a means by which they get God to be on their side. In other words, it's using God instead of being used by the Lord, using God. And although Moses fell down before the Lord and saw his glory, yet it didn't change his spirit. It didn't change his spirit. And we've got to be careful that whatever it is that lies in front of us, that we do it in our right spirit. When Elisha uh, accompanied the three kings uh, to war in Second Kings chapter 3, one of the kings was Jehoshaphat, and uh, Elisha respected Jehoshaphat the king. He was the king of Judah. But Jehoshaphat had a besetting sin, and that was that he was sometimes easily manipulated. On three occasions in Scripture, we're told that Jehoshaphat did what his instinct told him not to do. And it wasn't just his instinct. The Word of God told him really not to do it. He had a good heart, and he tried to bring the kings of Israel on side. What happened is what always happens, well, almost invariably, is that he was brought along the king of Israel's side. And here is Jehoshaphat going out to war with two kings in an alliance in which he should not be involved, going to do a good thing, notice, to bring Ramoth Gilead back into the possession of Israel, Jehoshaphat should have nothing to do with it. But he was found having something to do with it. And Elisha goes along with them, and Elisha is angry inside. He's angry because of Jehoshaphat's weakness. He's also angry because of the kings who have manipulated Jehoshaphat. And um, when the king of Israel spoke to Elisha, uh, Elisha said to him, what have I got to do with you? He says, you go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said, no, he said, it's the Lord that has taken us together to deliver this city from the hands of Moab. Notice, by the way, how the king of Israel takes comfort from the fact that Jehoshaphat's with him. That goes back to what I said earlier. You're giving an impression by whatever you do. And the king of Israel even thinks Jehovah is with them because Jehoshaphat has come with them. That adds to Jehoshaphat's sin. But Elisha said, um, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, 
Were it not that I respect the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I wouldn't even look at you nor see you. Wouldn't have anything to do with you. But now, he says, bring me a musician. Bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him and said, Make the valley full of ditches. You will not see wind or rain, but the valley shall be filled with water so that you and your cattle and your animals may drink. Now, the musician there was obviously a sacred musician. It was obviously um, a Levite who sang the songs of the Lord. And what Elisha needed there was his own spirit to be quietened. He was genuinely angered by, by the evil that was around him. But, but you've got to be careful that your anger is rightly channeled in words and actions. And Elijah could easily have said or done something there that was against God's will. And the wrath of man never works the righteousness of God. The wrath of man never works the righteousness of God. Yes, it's true that as we're told elsewhere, the wrath of man will praise God. God will make sure that the wrath of man will one way or another praise him, but the wrath of man will not work the righteousness of God. So he asks for the musician. He asks for the song to be sung so that peace will come into his heart and he'll be sure that what he then says and what he does is the word of God and the will of God exactly. Now Moses did not do that. Moses leaves this encounter with God in such a way that his words and his actions let him down badly. Make sure that your prayer is a prayer. Make sure that it's not a baptism, a baptizing of, of the bad will that you have and that you're going to carry out anyway. If you really want the guidance and the help of God, get it. Get it, and, and, don't, and don't leave with him until your spirit is in a proper state of mind. It's a dangerous thing to be going full steam ahead in our own anger. Uh, <clears throat> so here Moses was provoked. But there's still a difficulty with that, you see, because, as I said, he had encountered this kind of willfulness before. Moses was used to people giving him grief and it makes us wonder if there was something that left him susceptible to being provoked this time. What, what was it that made the meekest man on the face of the earth lose it all of a sudden? Um, it is possible you could say that the death of his sister had something to do with that, only just a month or two before. Maybe if, I mean, she was the one who had been instrumental in delivering him when he was a child just 120 years before. It's a long time to live with someone in your own family. Along with her mother, she had raised him. Um, there must have been a close bond there, but that's no particular reason. I, I know that when we are in grief, we're more susceptible, perhaps to different kinds of sin, but it doesn't explain anything. What I think honestly explains the situation is the time factor of 40 years between this incident and the last one. You see, the fact is that it's a new congregation. I mentioned to you that everybody over the age of 20 had died, and now it's a new people. It's a new people. Now, what would encourage you, 
let's say you were somebody who was ready to go into the promised land like Moses was there and then. And let's say you got the bitter blow of knowing that you were going to be 40 years wandering before you got the thing that God promised you. That's quite tough. What is it that would encourage you in the middle of all that? Aside from the fact that it was the Lord's sovereign will, well, I think it would be the knowledge that when the 40 years period of chastisement went over, was over, that the people would be different, would it not? Especially if God said that everyone over the age of 20, effectively, are being written off. I'm leaving this generation, God says. Now, that doesn't mean that they were all lost. But God is not going to do with them what he otherwise would have done with them. You understand what I mean? It, it doesn't mean they're lost. It does mean that they're going to fail substantially in terms of what God wanted of them. I think, by the way, our own de generation is precisely in danger of doing exactly the same thing, by the way. Um, if, if you wonder what it means, I don't think we have to look far what it means. I, I think God wants more of ourselves than we have ever done for himself. But in any case, what would encourage him is the thought that 40 years would mean that a new generation had arisen who would learn and observe a generation that would be taught to think and speak and behave differently. And hence the shattering anticlimax of coming to this rock at this time after so many years and discovering that they are like their fathers. In other words, that the chastisement, hard as it was to bear, doesn't even seem to have worked. Like their fathers, they are a stiff and rebellious race. Now, that's a disappointment. And I think it's a very deep one. It's a very deep one. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. And um, it's a prayer that he writes, Psalm 90, when um, he's coming to the end of the wilderness wandering, and he's seen so many people die in, in, in these 40 years. So many people are dying under the chastising hand of God. They've had their blessings through that period, but he knows every single time there's a death that the chastisement of God is being worked out in that midst. And uh, he says, who knows the power of your wrath? Teach us our end in mind to bear, and so to count our days. And uh, he's got very few to go that we, our hearts, may still apply to learn thy wisdom and thy truth, that we may live thereby. Let, let's learn from this experience. And then he closes with a prayer um, in verse 15 of Psalm 90. Now, listen to this. According as the days have been, wherein we grief have had. Now, that's a special reference to the 40, 40 years of chastisement. According to these days, he says, and the years wherein we evil have seen, so do thou make us glad. Oh, he says, now this is a prayer for quickening and renewing. Oh, let thy work and thy power appear before thy servant's face. Let's see it. Let's see something new and wonderful. And show unto their children dear thy glory evermore. Oh, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And the work of our hands, he says, 
even over these 40 years of leading and teaching, establish the work of our hands, establish them, each one. And then the congregation come and complain their heads off as their fathers had done. It's the sense of shattering anticlimax that the generation is no better than the one that had gone before. Um, and I'm sure he felt that he had labored in vain. Now, in that he was wrong. This generation did complain, all right, but they were a better generation than the generation that had gone before. In fact, in his little book, it's often overlooked, the history of redemption by Jonathan Edwards. It was once the most uh, widely read of his works. It's now possibly the least read. But, but he says that this generation that actually entered into the land of promise were taken all in all, he said, the strongest of all the generations and the most spiritually vibrant of them all. Um, but they were still guilty of this. It is a reminder that there are besetting sins that just break out in congregational life from time to time. And that's life, sad to say. Moses judged the people by this event. And he was too downcast about it, but sad to say, he was too angry about it. And he lost his spirit. He lost control of his spirit. Now, let me say to you that keeping your spirit right before the Lord um, isn't a day's work. It's, it's every day's work. It's every day's work. Christianity is a daily thing. <clears throat> Give us day by day our daily bread. Uh, let him, him that follows me, let him carry his cross daily. Daily. How often are you to seek the face of the Lord? Daily. You're daily to seek it. And the problem here with Moses is that on this particular day, his spirit wasn't right before the Lord. Now, if I said to you that tomorrow morning's prayer is important for you, how important would you think tomorrow morning's prayer is? You would say, oh, well, it's not that important. You know, if, if I don't really pray tomorrow, I prayed yesterday and I prayed the day before and I've built up a stock of patience and a stock of grace and I can withstand these things. Really? Really? Carrying your cross daily is connected to daily prayer and to seeking the face of the Lord daily. You, you can't carry your cross daily unless you seek his face daily. It's a day-by-day -day business, Christianity. You can't live on yesterday's stock. You remember how quickly the manna rotted. The manna was to be gathered every single day. And when Israel tried to, to break the rules, well, they, they suffered accordingly because the manna stank and it went off day by day. So the Christian life needs to be revealed. Now, anger is the real heart of the problem. Anger. And that breaks out into his words and into his deeds. Now, I've mismanaged my time. And uh, I'd hope to deal with the words at this point and leave the deeds till tonight. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to leave the words and the deeds until tonight. As the scripture says, he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. And then he struck the rod twice on the rock. Let's leave that uh, for the evening and let's pray. O Lord, our God, uh, help us to recognize our need to keep our spirits in check, our need to keep ourselves in the love of God, 
our need to keep ourselves in the fear of the Lord all the day long, the need to bridle our tongue. O Lord, help us in all these things. We have within us a principle that is deeply opposed to the Lord whom we love and whose name we profess. And we pray every day to seek to keep that under. Uh, We ask that you would help us in learning these important lessons from Scripture. Be with us, each one, through the remainder of this Sabbath day. In the Saviour's name, Amen. Now let's uh, read a psalm in conclusion. Psalm 78 on page 324. At verse 5. His testimony and his law in Israel he did place, and charged our fathers it to show to their succeeding race that so the race which was to come might well them learn and know, and sons unborn who should arise might to their sons them show, that they might set their hope in God, and suffer not or allow not to fall his mighty works out of their mind, but keep his precepts all, and might not, like their fathers, be a stiff rebellious race, a race not right in heart, with God whose spirit not steadfast walk was. The sons of Ephraim, who nor bows nor other arms did lack, they had no lack of equipment, when as the day of battle was, they faintly turned back. They break God's covenant and refused in his commands to go, his works and wonders, They forgot, which he to them did show. Let's stand to receive God's benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.